Today's episode is brought to you by Retromania Wrestling. Retromania Wrestling is inspired by the awesome early 90s arcade wrestling action. The roster of this game includes both wrestling legends and stars from today, including Hawk and Animal, The Road Warriors, Tommy Dreamer, reigning NWA champion Nick Aldis, Matt Cardona, and even the Blue World Order. There's a story mode, there's an arcade mode, you can do singles matches, tag matches, six-man tags, eight-man tags, and even the Retro Rumble. Retromania is available now for Nintendo Switch, PS4, PS5, Xbox One, Xbox Series X, Steam, and iArcade. There's even a Retromania-themed iArcade cabinet. Check them out at RetromaniaWrestling.com and follow them all on social media at RetroSoft Studios, RetromaniaWrestling.com. Who will step up to the ring and face the Road Warriors? Today's episode is brought to you by DB. DB is a Scandinavian brand that makes backpacks and bags to help people on the move stay ready for anything from the streets to the peaks db's gear is travel tested by some of the world's best athletes adventurers and creators over the past decade db has designed and developed released and refined the best bags in the market with db's patented hookup system you are able to attach small products to your backpack roller or tote it is very important to have the right luggage and the right bag when you are traveling. There's no doubt about that. We are now teaming up with DB for an exclusive offer to our listeners of 10% off when you purchase by using the code POD10 or going to the link in the show notes. DB, it's time to move on. It's time to get going. That is 10% off using the code POD10 at our link. That is DB, it's time to move on and it's time to get going. The upcoming presentation is a two-man power trip of wrestling podcast production. What's up, guys? It's the phenomenal AJ Styles. You're listening to the two-man power trip. Hey, Johnny. Cool, man. What's going on? We ready to go or what? Okay.
Hello and welcome to the Two Man Power Trip of Wrestling. I am your host, JP Ajahn. Pause with me today is a very special guest. His resume is crazy. I actually had to cut it down a bit to, to kind of fit it all in. Three-time ECW World Tag Team Champion, a former WB Intercontinental Champion, four-time WB World Tag Team Champion, three-time WB US Champion, a former WCW Hardcore Champion, and a former WCW Cruiserweight Champion. He is the one and only Lance Storm. Lance, welcome to the two-man power trip. Thanks, and I've got my dog doing a run-in, but we'll have to deal with him. Yes, <laughs> that's perfectly okay. Although I, I do find it funny, not that it matters at all, that when people want to run down the resume, they they string all those titles, but it's like, I guess it's just an American thing, but it's like, they never mention the Jap Japanese or the European stuff or the Canadian stuff. It's just the ECW, WCW, WWE. It's like, as if my career started in ECW. <laughs> hey, former war, right? You were a champion. In, in I was a two-time war IJ tag team champion, as well as a one-time six war right? six-man, yeah, world six-man championship as well. But, uh, yeah, it's funny, and again, not that it matters, but I always, and again, laugh is the wrong term, but, you know, if I get labeled an ECW original, it's like, how am I an ECW original? It's like, I I worked a lot of places and did a lot of things well before ECW. Yeah. It's funny, like, like who's an ECW original and who's not and how that goes down. Because te technically, Mr. Hughes was there from the very beginning. No one ever says Mr. Hughes is an ECW original, yeah? Well, that's where, to me, <clears throat> anyone that's going to have that moniker, to me, it should be the first place that they were sort of known as well. Like, if like you Chris got Chetty. your... If you got, yeah, like Chris Chetty, you know, he, he was trained, I think, by Taz and started in ECW. And like the Dudleys, like they weren't the Dudleys anywhere else. Like they were put together, given the, the Dudley moniker there. Like, again, was it Mondo Clean or some ridiculous name that Bubba had before that? Yeah. Like, he, but no one watching a Bubba match is thinking of anything pre ECW. He, he was never Bubba before that. So I would consider him an ECW original. But, <clears throat> you know, Jerry Lynn, it's like he did a lot of stuff beforehand. You know what I mean? At least I was aware of a lot of stuff beforehand. Like uh, him and Waltman, even just in, in global wrestling, it's like yeah. I remember as a, a wrestler breaking in, it's like trying to track down the tape traders to find footage of the Lightning Kid and Jerry Lynn. Absolutely, yeah. So there's there's a lot more to that. But again, ECW and the fan base have such a high pedestal that they put ECW on. It's if if that's the first place they saw you, then you're an ECW original, I guess. Yeah, I guess you kind of, in a weird way, are, are an ECW original. Obviously, we're a veteran before that, but it's funny that people do say, like, he said, the original, Lance Storm, always, for sure. And it's funny because everyone that'll say that knows i was a thrill seeker in smoky mountain wrestling right absolutely it's like i was in the u.s on television and those fans are aware of it that was 94 that was four years uh, three years i guess before you know i i was in ecw so even if you aren't aware of my my run in europe and my run in japan there's still smoky mountain which was a legitimate territory that had television but again not that it actually matters if whatever you and remember it, you remember 
And TV champion, right? You beat the clock. I uh, was TV the champion. beat the clock TV champion there. And I was also um, the CW, uh, CWA catch um, cruiserweight. Well, not cruiser. It was junior champion. And it's funny to this day, I'm still not sure if junior champion was meant to be a weight limit or an age limit. <laughs> because Well, they created the, the title when I was there. And Hiro Yamamoto, uh, Hiro Tenzan now, we were the only two people in the division. <laughs> it's like we were, again, I was, I think, about 215 at the time. He was trying to get heavier because he was on excursion. But, oh, my dog is trashing my ring light and pulling things out of the wall. <laughs> two seconds here. The dog is, is going crazy. It, this is almost like... Uh... ECW style. The dog is getting uh, involved. Dog is getting a little crazy. Why uh, Lance fixes that? Yep. There we yeah, go. He's usually Back. a little better, but he's ramped up this morning for some reason. And he's a hundred pounds, so it's, <laughs> he's hard to control. When yeah, you're... uncontrollable. But um, where was I? Oh, Hero and I. Yep. We were In both Japan. young, and. We were, again, there was, you know, Fit Finley was there. Um, who else would have been there? Mills Erno, who weren't any bigger than us. And they weren't in the division. It was really just he and I, every month or so, would have a championship match to trade the title. And they only ever called it the junior championship. So I, I don't know whether I was the champion because I was young or because I was under 220 pounds. I'm not sure. So... The reason why you're on today, of course, I definitely want to get into your career and everything, too, but wanted to talk about a big training seminar coming up September 18th and 19th in Toronto, Canada. Of course, you can go to Eventbrite for tickets, but tell us all about this nice opportunity for uh, some wrestlers to get trained by one of the best. Yeah, it's the first first thing I'm doing in person um, since the, I guess, since March 10th. I got home March 10th, 2020. Wow. Um, was my last that's I, again, I checked my park and go receipts. Um, so I knew when I, I landed back in Calgary from my last WWE event. And, and so I've been home for over a year and a half now or about a year and a half now. And this is the first time I'm doing anything in person. So it, it'll be really cool. And again, my green screen is acting up. Um, or my camera is not sure which, but, um, so it's going to be a lot of fun. I'm a, I'm a, Again, I've been training more than wrestling for the last 15 years, and, and I really enjoy the teaching process. So it, it's going to be a lot of fun for me. So when they contacted me with the idea, I'm like, well, the world seems to be getting reasonably back in order. Uh, I've had both my vaccines, so I'm uh, uh, allowed to travel and relatively able to travel. So I will be in Toronto to uh, actually be there in person and and lace up my wrestling shoes and put some knee pads on again, which is going to be really cool. Have you been staying in shape? I haven't been doing much else. <laughs> so, nice. yeah. um, again, I'm not in the shape I was in, you know, 20 years ago by any stretch of the imagination, but thankfully I've had a decent home gym for a while now. So I've been able to still lift, although not heavy during the last year and a half. And primarily as far as staying in shape, I've been hiking and walking more than anything else. I get a little bored on a treadmill and at my age with my knees running, isn't exactly my favorite thing. 
So I've been for the last, especially the last three months now in the summer, I've been hiking a lot of mountains and, and just logging a lot of miles walking. Um, actually, just a week ago, I, I broke my all-time record. I did a marathon uh, walk and did uh, 31 miles. I broke 50K in one day. Wow. As a, as a challenge. Like, it's not something you would normally do because it took almost 10 hours of straight walking. But uh, so, yeah, with that and the hiking the mountains, my, my cardio is not too bad. And the, uh, the light workouts in the home gym, I'm, I'm feeling good. Wow, that's probably quite impressive. What made you want to just kind of go for the the marathon just to break a record? <clears throat> well, last <clears throat> excuse me, last year, uh, a friend of mine online, um, he decided to see if he could do it. He wanted to bike fifty miles in a day, just sort of as a physical challenge for himself. And I was talking how that's kind of cool, but I don't ride a bike. Um, the constant having your neck tip back. I've got neck compression over the years and I'm told that I shouldn't have my neck tipped back at a high angle for long periods of time. So I don't bike and I'm like, I wonder if I could walk. And I figured like 25 miles is half the distance would be relative equivalent. And I think he, he timed his and he did it in two legs and it was about seven hours. I think when he did his bike. So I'm like, I wonder if I could do 25 in around seven hours ish or so on foot. So last summer I set out and did it because I'm also a Fitbit fanatic idiot that uh, <laughs> likes to keep track of my numbers. So last year I went out and in, I did a 20, 20 mile stretch and then a five mile stretch and together they were about seven and a half hours. But at the end of the day, I still had to walk my dogs and do other stuff. And I realized that my Fitbit was, I ended up being like 28 and a half miles. So even then I'm like, do I push it and try to make 30? And I'm just like, no, okay, I'm just, I'm good. And I stopped and it was 28.4 miles and I think 56,000 steps for the day. And this year, since I'm not doing all that much at home for COVID and everything else, I got it in my head that I was really close to 30. It's like, maybe I could yeah. beat 30. Yep. So I, I went out and it was, so I, I broke um, I guess it, what is it? it's, I, I broke 60,000 steps. I broke the 30 mile mark and then I'm like, okay, I'm good. Cause going to 35 miles, which is the next barrier is a long way, but somewhere around, I think it was about 10 o'clock at night. I realized that if you convert it to metric, I was really just shy of 50 K and I'm like, really like once and a half around the block and I'll hit 50 K. <laughs> so yeah. I, I laced my shoes back up and went out. So I ended up doing, I, I think it was like 31 and a half miles, 50 K and worked out to about 63,000 steps in a day, which is a, a hell of an outing. Yeah. How are you feeling after that? Um, I didn't feel too bad. Like my feet started getting a little sore after 20. And my one hamstring and knee started knotting up a little bit around the 25 mile mark. And, but by the end of the day, like even when I went out for the, the last, you know, kilometer and a half to break 50 at that point, I started loosening up again. Cause I got a break. And again, I do a lot of, you know, seven, eight, nine mile walks just cause I like walking and I've got time cause I'm not doing much else. Right. So I've done a lot of distance and I've done, um, 
I did a couple of mountain hikes, which are a hell of a lot more work, even though they're shorter. You know, when you add, you know, 800 meters of elevation in your walk as well, um, it gets you in pretty good shape. Now, is that kind of shape a lot different than being in wrestling shape? You always hear people say like, oh, I'm always in great shape, but I'm not in wrestling shape. Well, yeah, it's a different level. But again, I'm not at a point in my life where I'm planning on doing 15 or 20 minute matches again. So it's not really imperative. Like, again, I'm 52 years old. My only real goal right now is to feel good and, you know, be healthy. So I'm good. Two seconds here. My daughter is again having issues. So with the the actual training and, and everything else and being in, in wrestling shape, I mean, that seems like, you know, like you said, you're not doing full time, but that just seems like oof, up and down the knees. I mean, it seems like it, it is obviously a lot more intense. Yeah. It's like the only thing I would not be in shape for is the cardio. <clears throat> like my body feels good. My knees are good. My back's good. You know, they were never that bad ever to begin with. And my dog just hit my hydraulic thing on my chair. (laughs) So I'm in good shape and healthy in that regard, but I don't do the level of cardio required if I were actually going to do a match. I would imagine you get two beyond a a five-minute match, a seven-minute match if I'm really smart and lay it out well. I'm probably going to be huffing and puffing pretty good. Yep, And even... Like, even if I was doing that level of cardio, you got to go in and do it. Because there's that. I'm sorry. It's a different breathing process of putting the energy into it, talking, screaming, yelling, bumping, and then also relaxing your breathing. So without actually doing drills in ring and matches in ring you're never going to be hey i'm going to go out and do a 25 minute match that's a tough one and again i i don't see why like even if i were to take another match it's like i can't imagine there being a reason i would ever need to go more than 12 or 15 minutes so i would still need to up my card if i was ever going to do that again but that isn't in my current plans at all when you do like a seminar you do training is a lot of it wrestling training or are you doing some cardio too or is it mostly cardio like how does that work with the seminars well i've never been one to like doing the cardio and just making them run for the sake of it like if you're running a regular school then fine but if you get a chance to learn from me it's like you don't need to learn cardio from me there's a million people you can learn better cardio from so to me, it's a bit of a waste of my time or my value. It's like my, my value is in my wrestling knowledge and my ability to teach you wrestling. So I tend to, whenever I run seminars, do more of that. Like there's going to be always a required bit of warm up and get moving. But if I'm just going to, you know, make you do squats and pushups and stuff, it's like you can get any personal trainer to gym to make you do that kind of crap. So I, I just think it's, not proper use of time and value. So if you're going to pay money to come train with me, it's like, you're going to learn a lot more if you actually, you know, get in and wrestle and hear me 
hear me talk about wrestling and then also, you know, get a chance to actually do some physical stuff with me as well. When those training seminars are going on and you're doing that, do you teach them a lot of the in-ring stuff or do you also teach them some of like the, the other parts of, you know, the politics and, and you got to be ready for so, or are you strictly st- staying with like, Hey, we're, let, let's focus on in-ring and getting you better in the ring. I, I generally hit it all depending on what people's most interest is. Like there's going to be always the physical technique stuff they want. There's going to be a lot of psychology because I think that's really important, but I generally do. And I, again, there's actually a, a Q and a Saturday evening. A lot of times in, in those situations, that is the stuff that people want the experienced knowledge from. And it's the, okay, what do you do in this situation? What do you do when this happens? And if someone is doing this, it's like, how do you handle it? Because there is a lot of politics and obstacles and just ways to conduct yourself. And there's a lot of pitfalls that you can fall into along the way. So when, and if questions like that arise, I always deal with them, but they aren't anything that I really sort of plan and and put thought into ahead of time. Those are just, if it comes up, we'll answer them and deal with them. Talk to Dr. Tom all the time. And he always says the basics and fundamentals never go out of style. And he constantly, obviously great trainer himself constantly preaches is that do you agree with that as well the basics the fundamentals you have to have that down before you start developing characters and everything else well i think that's the case with everything right like you can't make it in the nba if you can't dribble a ball Hmm. you know what i mean and you you can't become a race car driver unless you know how to steer brake and shift gears it's like you always have to have your basics and your fundamentals and if you ignore those early it will come back to bite you in the ass so i I do think but that's where too you know with seminars it's it's the more frustrating part for me in that you don't always know the level of everyone that's going to be there right so it's like if everybody has good basics and fundamentals then we don't need to worry about it but if there's people that are really struggling on some of the more basic things. It's like, we've got to hit this. And because I am a very detail conscious guy, like there's a lot of stuff that people pass for good fundamentals that just make me roll my eyes and want to, you know, makes 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 my head explode. So there's a lot of things that I do like to try to point out and fix along the way. If we can, the only problem is, and again, this is probably why Dr. Tom also harps fundamentals, fundamentals, if you don't get good technique early and you develop bad habits, it's really hard to break them. And even we were talking about this before we started the show about, you know, Hulk Hogan doing a lot of heel stuff, which is one of the reasons why I wasn't a Hulkamaniac as a kid, you know, the back raking, the eye raking. It's like, I really think it is a case of he worked as a heel when he first broke in and it just became his instincts. Oh, Hey, I got to take over. I'll rake his eyes. And it's just like, yeah, you're pulling from your heel playbook that you developed early. And when you develop bad footwork and bad techniques and stuff, it's like, especially if you've been wrestling for a while, it's hard to fix those. So at seminars, when at all possible, I like to try to point those out as often as possible of this would be better. And then another thing that I tend to do and not an, I don't think enough others do because I do have very specific and certain ways I prefer things to be done, but I can explain to you why it's better. 
And there's a lot of people, well, there's lots of flavors of ice cream and there is, and there's lots of ways to skin a cat. But if you're doing this move, this hold or whatever, and you've been taught this way, and this is the way I teach it, it's like, I can explain the advantages to my way. And if you can't explain to me why your way that you've been taught or you do is better, it's like, well, then it's not better. It may be, well, that's the way I've always done it. It's like, well, that's fine. But unless you can explain to me why it's better, it's not good technique. Right. It's crazy, though, with WWE because people are getting mad that they kind of want people with less experience. Isn't that because they want to teach them their way? It's almost they don't want them to have bad habits coming in. Do you think that's why they want people with less experience? Because they can teach them the right way? or their No, way? because, again, there's... A lot of things that they teach that I don't think is the right way. Right. True. But yeah. but I, I think it's just a case of they they like blank slates. They like and and I think part of it is not so much the whether you're doing it the right way or the wrong way. It's just when you've had success and you've achieved certain things, you're a little more questioning, a little more certain that there are alternate ways of doing things. And if you don't like to be questioned, blank slates are great. And that again, it's <clears throat> back to what I talked about with, with, with my teachings. It's like, I have no problem with anyone questioning how or why I do something because I can explain to you why I do it. But if your answer is just, well, that's just the way I want you to do it. You'd rather them not question you. And I think that's where blank slates come in rather than others. Now, again, when I had my school, I preferred a blank slate to someone who's just had a bit of poor training elsewhere because there were a lot where it's like, oh, my God, we have to change everything that you do because he was going to, you know, Joe Indy wrestling school where it's like, you know, this guy's had four matches and he's teaching you. And it turns out he had horrible technique, and now I have to try to break all of your habits. But again, if you're signing someone, where again, like they signed Adam Cole at one point for developmental, and it's like having him is a billion times better than a blank slate because the guy was great when you signed him. Right. Yeah, a lot of those guys too. It's just funny. It's like sometimes they go back and they go almost backwards. We're like, no, we don't want to sign guys. Like, you know, they signed AJ and Smoke Joe and all these guys. And it's like, no, now now we're going backwards. We we don't want to sign those guys. So it's always, I don't know, a mixed bag with, with them. I guess there are ex extenuating circumstances where you want a guy like Cole or whoever, but I feel like sometimes they almost go backwards where they want a, a clean slate or blank slate of guys like a Braun Strowman. Well, I, I don't think that's just WWE. I think that's entertainment in general wrestling as well that part of it is the grass is always greener but also is change is always refreshing where in anything if you again you know any wrestling company it's like everyone is big it's like and then you see someone small doing something else like, wow he stands out we need more of that and it's better if you just add a little of that rather than deciding to change your entire philosophy but if you have a bunch of small really exciting workers forever <clears throat> it seems to be the same and it's not as exciting anymore so it's like oh i mean we need big guys we want some you know we need some big stan hansons in here and then if you switch everything over to stan hansons in a while that gets dull and, and i think in wrestling and in most forms of entertainment you're always better to have 
a lot of things. Like if everybody looks like Lex Luger, it's like you don't even notice anymore because it's just everybody looks like that. And if everybody looks like, you know, pick the hottest woman you've got on television, it's like nothing stands out. But if you have a bit of everything and you have a Stan Hansen and you have a Lex Luger and you have a Rey Mysterio, it's like I think that's probably a better approach. But Vince tends to do big changes rather than minor ones. And it's like, well, it's his prerogative. It's his company. But uh, yeah, we'll see where NXT goes in the near future. Yeah, because it seems like they want to change everything up. But as of very recently, Samoa Joe is now the NXT champ for the third time. So I guess that means Cross is probably going to roll. But it's almost like, okay, you want to change everything up, but you're bringing Joe back and he's a three-time champ now. And he's you know a 40-year-old veteran in, in your developmental program. Well, if what we hear about the changes they want out of development, I think Joe's the perfect choice hmm. that if you're going to want bigger men and develop them in developmental, having a big guy who's a tough guy with a rep of that as your champion, he's the one that's going to be working with all of these guys as they move up. And Joe represents a big established guy as a star. And anyone who, again, let's just pick Odyssey Jones out of the hat just because he, right. you know, he's in the breakout tournament thing. It's like, if you want Odyssey Jones to get good, it's like, well, working with Joe is a hell of a good idea. Yes. And Joe will be credible against him so they can do the competitive matches. Joe can teach him how to be a good big man. And then when the time is right, Yankee Odyssey, Odyssey Jones up where I could see now, obviously Adam Cole is phenomenal, but if Adam Cole is your champion and your mentality and your presentation is we're pushing big, tough guys, I can see the optics issue of, well, if Odyssey Jones is going to be getting kicked around and beat up by Adam Cole, it's kind of killing his big guy image. But if he's getting punched and kicked around by Joe, there's no optics issue. So I can see Joe as a figurehead, sort of as that standard bearer, where if you can get to the point in developmental where you standing nose to nose with Joe in a main event match is believable and good, you're ready for the main roster. He's kind of the measuring stick. I mean, obviously, he's an unbelievable wrestler, but he's, he would be a great mentor, I guess, is what they have in mind for him. I would imagine so, because, you know, Joe's been everywhere, done everything, and he's awesome. So, um, and again, maybe he's at a point in his career where security and longevity is good, and he's going to be happy to be in a position where he's probably going to have a limited match schedule. He probably won't be wrestling every single week on NXT. He, I assume, won't be doing a bunch of house shows and stuff. So it'll be a way for him to take care of his body. And, and still be a significant push character that he can uh, still be, what's the word, you know, productive and useful, I guess. Do you ever get surprised, like, by some of the releases? I mean, obviously, you've been everywhere. You've done everything. You even were a producer for WWE. Do you ever get surprised, like, wow, Joe is gone, and then they yank him back in? Because it's like, why the hell did they release him? You ever get surprised, like, Wyatt or Strowman or some of these guys? It's like, why would they release some of these guys? Any of that surprise you or shock you at all? There's a few that surprised me. Now, Joe didn't because he was under a talent contract doing commentary. Hmm. So I thought there was a good chance that it's like, okay, I don't know what his contract was, but it's possible that it was, you know, five or seven fifty or something a year. It's like, 
they're not paying the third guy at the desk half to three quarters of a million dollars to be the third guy at the desk. So if they want to get out of that talent contract, it's like, well, I can see where they'd want to release him. Or if his contract was up, it's like, okay, we're not, we're not paying you the same amount of money, Joe. Here's an announcer's contract. And if Joe wasn't happy with that as an offer or wasn't happy with commentary as a full-time career moving forward, then the release, the expire of his contract happens. And then at that point, obviously he's got medically cleared. So at that point, he's back on the market as a talent. And I guess someone realized that, hey, if we're going to make these changes to NXT, Joe now as a standard bearer and, and, and measuring stick mentor in NXT is worth X a number of dollars. I have no idea what they offered him. Right. And Joe was happy with that deal. So that didn't surprise me. But again, I was surprised with Strowman. And there was others that did surprise me. But again, it's when you're around wrestling long enough, you learn that, you know, the only thing that's uh, for sure is change. Yeah, true. Just thinking of you and just going back to like your training stuff. So hard dungeon graduate, but I always read that Jericho says that like you guys never saw the hearts, even though you were trained by the hearts. Like, is that true? It's like, how was that like possible? It was the Hart Brothers Pro Wrestling Camp, which was owned and operated by Keith Hart. But they rented a building. They put a ring in it because that's another uh, misnomer. Legend is great, but like the Hart Dungeon is a basement. Hmm. And, you know, with a, I don't know the exact height of it, but like a seven foot ceiling and there's no ring in it. So no one actually did all of their training and became a pro wrestler in the heart dungeon. Now the TJs and the Harry's and the Natties, there's mats down there and they did learn to grapple and do moves and stuff, but they had rings out in their yard. And then they did shows where they could actually climb a turnbuckle and hit ropes and learned how to wrestle. So the dungeon was more stew stretched people. Yep. And again, some grappling technique was certainly learned there by a lot of people. But when you came for the Hart Brothers Pro Wrestling Camp, they rented a building, they set up a ring, and they ran a proper wrestling camp. And that's what Jericho and I were part of in 1990. And, you know, Keith showed up the first day to get the paperwork signed and collect the money, and he showed up a couple of more times. But he had a guy, Ed Langley, who was a former referee, that ran and organized things. And the general model at that point for the Hart Brothers camp was a previous graduate that still lived in Calgary that was good. They bring him back to teach, demonstrate. And Ed had the, you know, the binder of we do this on the first day, this on the second day. These are the things you teach. And the previous student who went through it all would demonstrate. So that's how, again, Jericho and I did this in, in 91 no, sorry, in 90, in 1991 and 1992, I was the guy teaching the heart camp because Keith showed up and did the paperwork. Ed showed up and locked the doors and instruct things, but I did all the teaching and instructing. So that was the heart brothers pro wrestling camp system in the very late eighties, early nineties. Good buddy of mine, PJ, just incredible. Gives you a lot of credit because he was there a year after and you were training him and helping him. Yeah, I was, <clears throat> I was the guy that they hired and paid to, to, to be there every day and do it. 
Jericho and I were tight, obviously, and he was around. So he had nothing else to do. So he came by almost every day. And I think they eventually felt guilty enough that they paid him a bit too. I, I don't know that for sure, but I think they did. Hope so. <clears throat> so, so Jericho was there a lot too in the 91 camp by the 92. I think Jericho was working Mexico. So that was just me in 92, but yeah. Uh, and that was when I first met, uh, met, met PJ slash just incredible, but yeah. It's kind of weird too. Full circle. You help train him. Then when you're in ECW, he comes to ECW, and you know, and you you guys obviously form the Impact players. But kind of another full circle thing. I mean, wrestling seems like it always has that that full circle uh, moments. Well, yeah, and it 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 made sense, or not made sense might not be the right word, but the reason it happened is once I got to ECW, and, and PJ was there, we kept asking Paul if we could work. Because it's like, well, I trained the kid. And he's like, well, this guy trained me. It'd be fun to have a match. We had one in Calgary before he he moved back to the States after I trained him. So we kept asking Paul to let us have a match. And the first time it happened, it was more just a, a case of other stories allowed it. It was a three-way match with me and Justin against Dreamer. But Justin and I were both heels in a three-way so we work together a bit because we're going to double up and, you know, we do the, Hey, let's work together and beat up this idiot. Right. So we did that. And I assume that since I trained him and we, you know, he learned from me, we gelled really well. So in that three way, Paul saw something in us together with, Hey, these guys really work well together. Maybe there's something here. And shortly thereafter, we were put together as the impact players. And then again, our friendship from when, when, when Peach first broke in translated into the team and it ended up being a really great thing. And I remember, uh, Peach used to do a YouTube series. Pro um, wrestling one one Yeah. And he interviewed me for it once we were both at the same show for some reason. I don't remember why. And again, the question came up, it's like, why do you think, you know, the impact players worked? And it's like, I thought about it and it's like, we were the perfect hybrid of ECW in that everyone remembers the, you know, the hardcore, you know, hardcore matches, the kendo sticks, the fighting, the, the guys who, you know, were out there in, you know, non-traditional wrestling gear. And then there was the, again, you know, when Malenko was there and Eddie was there and Shane Douglas and Chris Candido and the wearing tights, more technical wrestling guys. Like there was both of those elements in wrestling. And it's like, I was one, PJ was the other. And then when you throw Don Marie in there, we get the the female aspect that was also a big thing in ECW. And it's like we had a bit of everything that was ECW. And it allowed our matches to have both elements because Peach would do a little bit more of the hardcore stuff and a little bit more of the edgier ECW angle. And I would do more of the, again, the Rob Van Dam, the Jerry Lynn, the pure wrestling end of it. So I, I think that was one of the reasons why the Impact players worked so well. And I think the other thing is, I think generally speaking, teams work better when there is, there's definitely the guy that's in the driver's seat rather than both guys having, you know, the visions and you have to sort of figure out which one wants to do what and which we're actually going to do. But because I already had that mentor stab established with PJ, cause I trained him, he was perfectly happy and trust me to lead the charge, if you will. 
So it was very easy to direct and keep us focused. And there wasn't that what happens often is where there's bickering amongst the team because he wants to do this and I want to do this. Peach trusted me enough to be selfless and do what was best for the team. And I think it really worked well. For sure. And it was a little opposites to track too, like a little yin to yang, you know, cause he's, he can be presented as, even though he's a really good wrestler, present the hardcore with the, the jorts and you were like that straight laced, I'm going to be very serious in this promo and, and he's talking about smoking you, you know, and everything else. So it was a little bit of yin and yang, which worked perfectly. Yeah. Cause he was again, you know, he was more the, and it, not that he couldn't be the wrestler part, but it's like, that was sort of what just incredible was. So yeah, there was the each complementary aspects of it that, that really worked rather than the, the more common bookend teams where both guys are the same thing. Now, I always ask this to like XECW guys, and you usually get a similar answer, but it's, it's kind of it always changes depending on the guy's relationship. Was Paul Heyman a genius or not a genius? Because that's always people are like, yes, he is. But then there's always a caveat. What did you think about Paul? Well, it, it's funny in that, again, I would if I won't use that name, I still think he was brilliant. It's just I don't know if being smart enough to hide weaknesses and accent strengths should be given the genius moniker. <laughs> it's just That's for right. some reason, 90% of the damn wrestling industry isn't smart enough to do that. Like Paul was brilliant at looking at someone and finding the aspect of them that is best marketed to get them over. And in that regard, if you want to throw the genius moniker at him, I'm certainly not going to argue with you where I think so many others <clears throat> in the wrestling business they have a vision of what they want and they're more apt to stick that round hole in their square peg, so to speak, or uh, the round peg in the square hole where Paul Heyman will look at you and figure out what shape you are. And then they'll shove you in the hole that fits. And I, I think that's where, where Paul's genius is that again, he got more out of less than I think anyone. And again, part of it was necessity because he obviously didn't have the budget to just pick who he wanted. He had to take who was available, but he would always find a way and find a strength. And I've used the analogy before. It's like so many wrestling promoters will see the cloud in the brightest sky and Paul will find the smallest, smallest silver lining of the darkest, darkest cloud. And where many promoters will be that, you know, God damn it. This glass is 10%. You know, this glass is 10% empty where Paul will find a glass and go, damn it. It's 5% full. It's like, we got a drink here. Right. And I think that is Paul's genius that he will find something and even just, and again, I don't know this for a fact, but I assume it's the case and I'm fairly certain it's again, especially when you first meet me, I've always been a shyer, more reserved, quiet person. I like my solitude, mm -hmm. but when I'm around people more, I loosen up and I'm a completely different person. And it's funny because every territory I ever went to, they all have the, Oh, well, we brought you out of your shell. And it's like, no, I do this everywhere I go. It's just when I first show up, I'm a little quieter. Right. But where Paul was, and again, maybe he was lucky, but I knew Chris Candido from Smoky Mountain Wrestling. We not only worked together, but we lived in the same apartment complex, we went to the gym together. We were pretty tight. 
So when I came to ECW, and again, part of it, I think, was on the recommendation of Chris Candido. When I was in the locker room with Chris, I was comfortable. And it's like I joke and rib with Chris, and I'd have that smart-ass personality stuff that I had in ECW. But when I wasn't with Chris, I was, again, my more quiet, reserved person. And I think Paul saw that. So what was my first program on TV? Well, I'll put him out there in the ring with Chris Candido so he can be the guy I see in the back that's got personality. He can do that out there. And the program with Chris really helped bring me out of my shell as a character on television. And, And again, Paul saw little bits and things went, man, I can do something with that. And again, the original, uh, and this is, I think also Paul's brilliance. Um, and again, I don't know if it still is, but he used to use the word pencil in his, his email address. I won't give the whole thing out, but <laughs> you know, well, it's the old school term, right? The booker is the pencil. And I think Paul was again, brilliant in that. And again, I don't know if this is why it was called the pencil, but it's why I say it was called the pencil because you don't want to book an ink because you always have to be able to rub stuff out and change. And Paul was really good at having a vision. We'll go here, but he always kept branches open. And that's something that he taught me as a booker in that when you make your plan, make sure it's there's exits along the road. So if the crowd goes different, it's like, go that way. And the original triple uh, threat prospect that I did I was originally just supposed to turn heel enough so that the ECW audience would embrace me as a babyface. Chris and Shane were going to be the heels out of it, but they he wanted to bring me out of my shell, give me a little bit of an attitude with that prospect heel run. But when Chris and I split, I was going to be the babyface. That was the plan. Right. And we were half two thirds of the way through the program. And Paul just comes in and sits down and goes, Hate to tell you this, Chris, but you're going babyface. <laughs> and Chris was like, "What? I don't want to go babyface." He's like, "I'm just reading the crowd. They're getting more into Lance as a heel. He's the one that's going to be the heel in this." And Chris was like, "Crap!" I'm like, "Okay." And it just went that way. And then, uh, you know, Tammy came back from WWE, which gave Candido even more of a babyface because she was so popular in ECW that it was like, "No, this is going to work." And Paul got us to our destination. We ended up having to take a completely different road. And again, I think that's a lot of Paul's brilliance in that he isn't arrogant enough to think that this is my plan. That's what we'll do. And this is the way they will react. He has an idea. He thinks it will work. He figures this will get a reaction, but he will always listen. And he's always willing to fine tune. And because he's also very smart, it's never an abrupt fine tuning. So you never think it feels like a, Oh, he had to change his plan. It's like, I just make subtle changes. And if I'm not here telling you this, you'd go, Oh, Hey, this was the plan all along. He did this. Lance ended up the heel. They had this feud and it's like, Hey, perfect. But it wasn't the original plan. He was just smart enough to think on his feet and adjust. I always thought he was great at when he'd bring in like legends or, or big names, like how to use them, but get the, his talent over. Like I know Bam Bam was there for an extended period of time, but man, Bam Bam got over Shane. He got over RVD, got over Ted. You know what I mean? All these guys he would get over funk and funk would get over. Like he was perfectly would know, knew how to utilize the big name to get hit over his guys. Yeah. And then probably the real genius part of Paul Heyman is in his, um, 
ability and again it, it because he'll just babyface the shit out of everybody <laughs> the ability to convince you to do what he needs to get done like I, I think a lot of promoters wouldn't have been able to necessarily convince all of these names and talents that come in to do what he needed them to do to get over his own talent but paul is also very persuasive and he's done that now granted you know you mentioned bigelow it's like i'm a big fan of bigelow i worked with him in japan as well as ecw and bammer was always about doing what was right long term so uh, that was a no-brainer but yeah you know when you consider the importance of bam bam putting over rvd and then the program with taz and again, I was there with the part of the, you know, putting him as part of the triple threat and Shane yeah. getting that win. It's like he gave a lot of guys, you know, a big step up. Huge, for sure. Now, a lot of issues with Paul, though, like, okay, he's great creative. He might be opposite business-wise and money-wise. Did you have, like, money issues with him? Like like so many other guys have said, like, oh, I didn't get paid or bounce checked. Was that an issue with you? And did that leave, like, lead you to want to leave? Well, I did leave because of the financial issues in ECW. Now, again, I, I I don't think it's fair to say Paul was a bad businessman because I don't know if any businessman could have gotten ECW to that point and, and kept it all profitable and above board and making it. Now, I did have issues in that I think I only had one check bounce. No, it would have been three. Because, and this is where I felt that I had the ability and the leverage to go elsewhere if I wanted to. And I had a good relationship with Paul. And when there started being check issues, we I was actually in the process of negotiating a contract with him. But one of the clauses, if you will, things I want to put in my contract was if a check bounces... You know, he had, I think, 30 days to make good on or whatever was his thing. But I'm like, that's fine if you want that in there. But I want a three strikes, you're out. Because there's no way I'm going to stay here if every single check could always be, you know, four weeks right. late. Right. He said, yeah, no problem. And when I told him that and put my foot down, my check was FedEx to my house every week and it always cashed. So I was never behind in my pay. But when he did hit the third time it happened... I told him, it's like, I'm terminating. We were only under a verbal because we hadn't actually worked out all the details to the contract, but we were working under the agreement of it verbally. And I just called him and said, you know, consider this my verbal termination of my contract. You've bounced three checks. I said, I'm not quitting, but I am no longer under contract and obligated to stay here. And again, I, that may have been the point with the, 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 the checks started getting FedEx to my house. So at that point... I was never behind in my pay, but I realized that ECW was struggling or going the wrong direction financially. So at that point, I started looking at my options and reaching out with, you know, through <clears throat> a few friends of mine with let people know that I would be interested in other offers. And I got a pretty good offer pretty quick from WCW. And then again, I, I kept Paul in the loop the whole time when I was talking to WCW, because again, I had a good relationship with him, respected him. And it's like, I'm talking with them. He's like, okay. And I like, I agreed to deal with them. He's like, fine. When are you finishing up here? I'm like, well, I've got the pay-per-view with Justin coming up. Once I put him over the pay-per-view, I don't see why there's any reason to stay longer. 
And he said, okay. So we did the pay-per-view and then I left. Which is, I guess, you're, you're right to do that. I mean, if, if not going to get paid, you're wrestling, you're on his program, every right to get out of there and, and leave. Very smart on your part to have the a, a part of the contract too. Well, yeah, and granted, we'd never ever, ever got around to signing the damn thing, but <laughs> but it, it was a case of again, I was you know the the breadwinner of my family, and I had two kids at that point. You know, just had the um, the second one like just right before that. So it's like I had to look out long term for my family. And since I felt I had options to go elsewhere, it's like I had to take them. And Paul seemed to understand that. And to this day, Paul and I are friends. So there was no bad feelings on any front whatsoever. Now, technically, I didn't get my last check after I left, but I, I figured that was. And again, I don't even hold Paul. Um, I don't hold any bad will towards Paul on that front in that I realized that the company's in bad shape. There's people here not getting paid and I'm going to a really good financial situation. Me losing that last check really didn't hurt me at all. So had I fought Paul and managed to get him to give me that last check, it's like someone else in the ECW roster is not going to get paid. Right. True. And it's like, okay, starting next week, I start getting a really great weekly check from this other company. So I just, you know what? I loved my time there. I loved Paul. It's like, I'm not fighting over a check. Right. Makes sense. And obviously WCW gave you a nice offer. Was that when you first got there, was Bischoff still there? Or was that Russo and WCW that gave you the offer? It was both. Okay. Um, it was under the Bischoff Russo regime. Um, the um, Terry Taylor was the one that reached out first. Um, he was a, a producer, agent, whatever, yeah. might have been part of talent relations. I'm not sure. Uh, but he was the one that reached out and he was the one that sent up the, hey, you know, we can fly you to Atlanta this week and meet with Eric and and, and uh, Vince. I'm like, OK. So I met at a hotel suite um, that I guess Eric and Bish, uh, Bischoff used to, you know, book and write the television at. And after they did that, they had the meeting with me. So I met with both of them. I negotiated the contract with Eric. And then briefly discussed potential creative ideas with Russo. So did you like like the landing spot? Were you comfortable in WCW right away? Or were you thinking, oh man, this is political warfare right off the bat? You know, all those big names are there and there's a lot of turmoil. Obviously, Bischoff and Russo working together was was a bit odd uh, for a lot of different reasons. But what did you think when you first got there? Well, I, I knew what I was getting into. Like I was going there for financial security again, because I had a family and two kids. And to be honest, <clears throat> me as a fan, I always preferred the NWA slash WCW than WWF. I preferred the more pure sports, serious presentation of their product. So in the back of my mind, when I broke into the business, WCW was always my goal more than WWE. And obviously, you know, Jericho had been there. I had friends there, so I knew what I was expecting. So I wasn't going there under the guise of, oh man, I'm going to be a main eventer and, and, and headline here in no time. It's like, I knew where my place was going to be, but <clears throat> I thought there was some degree of void because a lot of the younger talent had left WWE at the time was just saturated with people. So I thought there would be more opportunity to have a place. I knew it would be, you know, the, the top two thirds, but not the top you know, third, but so I went in there with 
this is a good contract. This is going to be financial security. And I'll see, you know, as long as I get to have matches, I'll be happy. And then very quickly, it turned out that I'm working with people that I really like and enjoy working with. So it was like, it was fun and rewarding too. Cause it's like, I'm out there having matches with Billy Kidman and Ray Mysterio. And it's like, you know, the MIA guys, it's like, well, this is fun. And obviously, you know, what was it inside of, you know, three or four weeks, it's like, I'm starting to get this big push. So I ended up getting more featured than I expected. So it was like, it was a, a win-win until 10 months later and the place shut down. <laughs> right. Unfortunately, but it felt like at the point when you first got there, there was a huge void because that worker, that like work rate guy, the guy that they knew, like the Jericho, uh, the Dean, the Benoit, the Eddie, the Saturn, like that guy that was so synonymous with WCW that like, okay, if Hogan's going to have a eh, okay main event against Luger or something like you knew Benoit or somebody in the undercard was really going to make this show worthwhile. So you almost like kind of fit that void to me anyway, as a fan, it's like, okay, now they got a work rate guy, a guy who could be either top of the card, middle of the card, wherever, but you knew he was going to have a good match. I always felt like you kind of fit that, that Benoit spot, you know what I mean? Like, okay this is going to be somebody they could do something with. Well, that was sort of the, you know, the void I thought I had a chance of filling. And we're obviously in WWE, there wasn't a void on any level. They just had, you know, so many people because so many had just recently jumped that direction. So I, I was hoping for that upper middle card spot and, and have that time and that thing to prove my worth and my value. And maybe at some point move up higher than that. But it's like, I was content with that. And I got really lucky in that I started at the exact same time Johnny Ace did. And Johnny Ace came in from all Japan as an agent, really pushing himself as a finish guy that could up the quality of, of matches and, and, and near falls and finishes and stuff. And I had spoke with Johnny back in 94 after Smoky Mountain about potentially going to all Japan um, with Candido. So I had known Johnny a little bit. And we were on the same flight in uh, to the town where I debuted. And so Johnny needed someone who could successfully execute more complicated all Japan style finishes that was willing to be a workhorse and work really hard to demonstrate his value. And obviously, I also needed someone on the agent production side that saw something in me that would allow me to get the minutes in a match to demonstrate my value. And Johnny saw that in me right away. So he was my agent on my very first segment and for my first, you know, several months there. So he was the prime architect of that initial push. He was the one that called me with, okay, you're going to be winning the U S title tournament. We're giving you a push. We need to establish your finish. We're going to, you know, really get behind you and do something. And he was also the guy that, you know, every day I was at TV, I saw him with fighting to get a few more minutes in those matches, fighting to get me more, more time to highlight me because my success was tied to his success. So it, it really ended up being uh, a good combination. And I benefited greatly from Johnny needing that, guy that could do his style of work because there was a lot of guys in WCW that either couldn't or didn't want to work that hard. Right. I don't think that Mike awesome new blood rising you winning the title was his finished. That doesn't have Johnny H written on it, but maybe no, that, that was, <laughs> um, that had disco inferno written all over it. Right. Yeah. 
but yeah, th- I wouldn't have minded the new blood rising finish if we weren't in Canada. Right. And right. it's like, I explained it to them, but they didn't care. But I'm the, just like, that crowd liked it. You're not supposed to like, is this such a bad finish? Yeah. But it's like, it's like, oh, it'll get you so much heat. I'm like, not up here. It won't. Hell no. It's nope. like, if we are doing it in the States, great. And then the other thing, and I've mentioned this in other interviews that really bothers me in that if the idea was we need to protect Mike Awesome because we have big plans for Mike Awesome, then by all means, sacrifice me and I'll do the five jobs in one match like this ridiculous finish requires. But I think it was two weeks later, it might have been three Mike Awesome got a complete makeover and was that 70s guy. Yes. So it's like doing that to me was a complete waste where if they'd have had their heads about them and knew they were going to make him that 70s guy, I should have just beat him strong, clean in the middle of the ring, and I would have been a god in Vancouver. Yep. And especially with Brett there, like I even... And Jacques Rougeau, yeah. But do the match. I get the guy in the half crab. He manages to make the break. It's a great false finish. Another couple of false finishes. And finally, sharpshooter. Tap him to the sharpshooter right in the middle of the ring. The place goes absolutely ballistic. I beat him clean. I was presented strong. And then you hit Brett's music. And the place goes absolute batshit crazy. It was one of the loudest things I've ever heard in my life. And you have one of the commentators say, it's like he used Bret Hart's move. What's Bret Hart going to think about him stealing his move? So you bring Bret out with that question in your mind, and he gets in the ring, and we stand two feet apart, and we look at each other, and we hug. And you have Mark Madden hit the line. Well, who do you think taught him the move? He was trained by the Hearts in 1990. He's been a Hart family product since day one. Right, yeah. And you have Bret Hart endorse me and give me his finish. And at that point in time, I'm made for life in Canada. And Mike's being repackaged in three weeks anyway. It's like, so doing that to elevate me would have cost them zero. Yep. Instead, they went with a bunch of Gaga that, you know, could have killed me in Canada, to be honest. Right. Like, even in the locker room, um, Brett came up to me and he's like, you know, please don't take offense to this, but this crowd could turn on you tonight with that finish. And I said to him, it's like, yeah, I know. I think that's why you're here. And he looked at me, he's like, what do you mean? I said, I think they figured no matter how bad they shit on me tonight, if Bret Hart comes out and raises my hand at the end, they'll forgive me. True. I said, I think you're my get out of jail free card. But he's like, yeah, it could be. He says, but just be aware. He says, like, this crowd could turn on you. And I'm like, I know. And it's like risking that was, in my opinion, idiotic. When Mike's already the fat chick thriller, which is not a, you know, career defining moment to begin with. No. And then he's going to be wearing, you know, 70 zoot suits and doing the lava lamp lounge in three weeks. And, and again, Mike was a good dude and he, he would the first one too. Like he was like, I'd rather just do a clean match and put you over. I'm like, yeah, well, that's not what's happening here because uh, Vince Russo and disco inferno, inferno, disco inferno are the bookers crazy you did have a great run despite that that oddly booked pay-per-view which is just strange and especially now knowing that it, it was an ace and obviously i figured it wasn't him anyway but that 
awesome is going to get repackaged. It's just it was just a, a disaster. But you were booked pretty strong, though. I remember you had the three titles at once: the cruiserweight, the hardcore, the uh, Saskatchewan hardcore invitational title, the shit title, and uh, the U.S. title, which was the Canadian title. I just thought that was awesome because you think, okay, it's legendary U.S. title sticker you know you put it over on the canadian i mean what heat but i feel like you're booked great in WWE, despite some of the craziness that was going on there well that's again too now again i don't know this for a 100 fact but i do believe it to be true and this is what i was told that after i got there where again i mentioned that i discussed um creative with russo when i first got there yep. that first meeting and we're just sitting across the table after eric and i finished with the contract thing and he says you know just off the top of my head first idea i have you're going to be Eric Bischoff's illegitimate son. He says, you have that same cocky look on your face that he always has. And I sort of look over at Eric and he looks back at me. And part of me is thinking, it's like, does him thinking I have a cocky, arrogant look on my face, a good thing, or is this going to cause trouble? And then the other thing that went through my head is I look at Eric because he had the black hair at the time. And I'm like, what is he like 10 years older than me at best? It's like, how is he going to be my dad? Right. And thankfully, the next time I saw them, Eric's like, yeah, I killed that illegitimate kid thing. It's like, that ain't happened. And I'm like, okay, good. But I didn't have a whole lot going on at first. I did the, you know, I ran in, but like, they didn't seem to have a direction. And I was told that Vince Russo in a production meeting did the, I don't see anything in him. I don't know what I can do with him. And I was told that Johnny A said, give him to me. He'll be the hottest heel we have in six weeks. And that was the week before the tag team, uh, the U.S. title tournament, when Johnny said, "Give them to me." So the next, you know, four weeks. Again, it probably took him three and a half weeks. He did it. <laughs> you know, I won that title, that title, that title. I challenged Booker T, and it's like at that point in time, I was, if not the hottest heel they had, certainly the newest, freshest hot heel they had. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, he proved that it could be done. And then shortly thereafter, he started, you know, I think they saw the value in Johnny and moved him on to other people. And then I got the the more ludicrous finishes followed up with that. But again, Johnny was the one, you know, in particular, I know he was, again, he was the guy that worked out the finishes that he wanted for the tournament. He was the one for the, the hardcore and the cruiser. He was the one that really put a lot of pull and fought to get me enough minutes with Sting the time we did Sting. Yeah. He was, Great again... Man he primarily put the finish and the ending to the, the Booker T world title match. It's like, that's where he was um, my biggest advocate. With WCW closing, I know you're part of team Canada. Mike awesome. Eventually becomes a part of team Canada after a uh, car will let had some visa problems. He's gone. Jim Duggan makes a brief appearance. He's gone from team Canada, which was weird, but Mike awesome is in team Canada. And then that kind of leads to the end of WCW. That seemed like it was again to be a pretty strong team Canada with Mike awesome. Obviously the Duggan thing is, <laughs> it was what was what it was, but it seemed like that was like kind of on the way to being a strong stable with you, Skipper, Mike awesome, Tylene Buck. Yeah, they were, they were getting behind me and Mike as a team. Now, I was of the understanding, again, I don't know it to be fact, but I was of the understanding that he and I were actually going to win the tag team titles on that last Nitro. Oh, wow. Before it became the last Nitro, that that was the plan. But when the WWE people got in, it's like, well, we got to switch the world title because we're not hiring Steiner. We're taking Booker. I think the cruiserweight title was changing as well. And they're like, we don't want to change every title. 
And since they were hiring all four of us, they're like, let's just leave the belts on Palumbo and O'Hare. We'll get through tonight and figure everything out. So Mike and I's WCW tag run got <laughs> cut off at the knees, you know, hours before it was going to happen. Um, which is a shame just that, again, I've held tag titles pretty much everywhere I've ever went, except WCW would have been a nice, yep. you know, footnote in history. Your introduction for me would have had to have been longer. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. But so we missed out on that. But yeah, Mike and I as a team, we're, we're going to be, you know, I think featured fairly strong in the tag team division moving forward. And even for a very brief run in, in WWE, they were, you know, they were keeping us together, but WWE soured on Mike Awesome sooner than i wish they did but it it ended up you know i ended up going singles my own way without mike because they uh they kind of fizzled out on mike pretty quick you're really the first one to make the the jump i mean right weren't you the first to be part of the invasion the first to technically jump in the ring yeah i think i was technically the first contracted wcw wrestler to appear on wwe television yeah um and that was just a coincidence well i don't know if it's a coincidence but i think it was just a case of oh hey raw's in calgary we want the first one to be a surprise this is the easiest way to sneak somebody in that if they were going to fly someone to you know if they had to fly booker t to memphis to do a run-in for a television someone's going to see booker t in the airport and it'll get out but me being seen in Calgary is, is pretty common. So it's not a big deal. Right. And because they didn't even tell me, they told me that we're flying all the WCW talent to uh, Connecticut to meet with Jim Ross and get, you know, the, the tour and the initiation and just the introduction to the company. And they said, there's no point in wasting money to fly you to Connecticut. We're in Calgary in two weeks, just come down and you'll have your meeting with Jim Ross at the building. Okay. So I went down thinking that was the truth. And it was mid to late afternoon that someone came up to me. He's like, oh, you're on the show tonight, kid. And I'm like, yeah, right. Ha ha ha. And ignored him. And then later Johnny came back to me. He's like, yeah, you got your gear right because you're on tonight. I'm like, what? I'm like, "This, you're not ribbing me? He's like, no. He says, you're on tonight. I'm like, oh, okay. So I had like two hours notice because they didn't want it getting out. And again, maybe they also thought it's like, it's his hometown. He'll definitely get a big reaction. Yeah. Where again, obviously, if they'd have done something in Houston television a week or two either side of that, they might have done it with book. But as it would happen, there was Calgary, and it's like, well, this kid will definitely get a reaction in his hometown, so let's just do it. What did you think about the alliance, the invasion, that whole thing? Because it seemed like a bit of a flub just from a fan standpoint. Like, wow, we expected so much more, and then you know, we got Steve Austin and Kurt Angle on the on the WCW team when they were so true blue WWF guys, especially Austin. I mean, I know he wasn't WCW, but I mean, man, he carried WWF to beat WCW. Why the hell would he be on Team WCW? Did you enjoy any part of that that invasion angle? I enjoyed some of it. I, I think the one thing that really worked was the the show where they did that dramatic turn in the ring with the ECW guys and the WCW guys. Yeah, like that worked well. That was really cool, but. Yeah, at the end of the day, we lacked like even just two people. Two more people, I think, could have done it. Like if we had Flair and Eric or Sting and Eric, I think we would have been fine. You know, I, I think, again, Sting or Flair as someone who everyone associates as WCW. Yep. And Eric, obviously, as Vince's foe from the Monday Night Wars. It's like yeah. not having Eric at the start and we've got 
you know, Shane McMahon as our, our, our leader really, really hurt and not having stinger flare. Like, I think if we had those two, obviously a few others would have helped as well, but I think those two, two of those three, and Eric had to be one in my opinion, it really would have made a difference. And then the other thing that just always felt weird. And, and there was a few of us that kept asking, it's like, who are the baby faces here? Like, it just feels weird. Like, when you're putting stuff together, you generally, okay, they will cheer this, they will boo that. And it's like, we never sort of knew what reaction we were supposed to be trying to get because it's like, who are the baby faces? So that was odd. And then one other thing, which, again, I wish I would have managed to snag one, but I've never actually saw them. PJ uh, claims he saw them. After my initial run-in, and then uh, Bill DeMott did his, and then we there started being a few more. I had pitched to the office. It's like, we're not as identifiable. Like we're just a whole bunch of people. I said, what about getting team tracksuits like new Japan does? Cause like, if you're a, you know, a young lion, if what you get the, the new Japan sweats, we know what team you're on. Yep. And I said, what about getting actual WCW sweatsuits so that if it's a backstage segment, if it's a run-in, if it's, you know, that face to face, it's like, you always know what team we're on. Cause we wear our uniforms. Now, if it's a match, we're going to be in our gear, obviously, but we'd have those. And they liked the idea. They told me they were going to do them. And Peach one day comes, he's like, oh my God, I was just at the seamstresses. You should see these tracksuits. They're awesome. They got our names on them and shit. They're great. And like the next week they changed the direction, everything. And it's like they kiboshed it because, wow. you know, things were going a different direction. And I remember thinking to Peach, I'm like, what did they do with the suits? Can we still have yeah. them? It's like, I wouldn't mind one. <laughs> Yeah, it would look awesome, yeah, even at home, yeah. Yeah, but I, I just thought it would have at least given us a definite identity that, because like you say, it's like, you know, Austin in particular, it's like he comes out and it's like, does anyone's first thought when he comes through the curtain is WCW or the Alliance? It's like, I can't imagine where at least if there was sort of an identifying uniform, obviously he'd still want to put his Stone Cold t-shirt underneath it because he's got, you know, millions of dollars of merch money to make, but... I just w thought that would have helped to at least give us an identity. Yeah, really. And the Austin thing is just crazy because he's the kind of the reason they were not put out of business, but he's kind of the reason why WWF took over, really. I mean, it's just odd, odd uh, booking there. I just, well, yeah, uh, and, and the fact that Stone Cold Steve Austin only exists because WCW didn't have any plans for him. Yeah, exactly. Got a FedEx so, in the mail, yeah. Yeah, so it really was like the most absurd pick, but it it was what it was. With you, we mentioned kind of all fair. You had a full a few full circle moments, like as you were a fan, WrestleMania four, five, and six. You got to wrestle Hogan there. You got to wrestle Mister Perfect or with Mister Perfect. You got to see them wrestle, obviously, uh, on the grand stage as a fan. But that's pretty damn cool. Full circle moments with Perfect and Hogan. Yeah, in that, again, we talked about this before we, we started the show. I was at WrestleMania 6 as a fan. And it was years later watching that I realized that I was in the audience when Mr. Perfect wrestled at WrestleMania 6 at the Sky Dome. Awesome. And then you fast forward to Mania 18, 12 years later. And I'm wrestling at a WrestleMania at Sky Dome in Toronto. And my tag partner, one of my tag partners was a six man, is Mr. Perfect. And again, it was years later. They realized, like, wow, that's really cool. The I was there as a fan watching him, and now I'm his tag team partner. 
And the other I knew right away in that Mania 4 was the first time I saw Hulk Hogan wrestle live, and it was the Atlantic City Convention Center. And then fast forward however many years it would be to, I think it was a SmackDown we did from the Atlantic City Convention Center, and I'm in a six-man against Hulk Hogan. It was Hogan, Rikishi, I want to say Edge. I'm pretty sure it was Edge because I think they were starting the Hogan-Edge run, and it was Christian myself and i'm i would guess test was with us as the 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 un-americans at the time it may have been a different person but and i fed the hulk up in his comeback and you know the 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 fan in you is like oh wow this is really cool and and the fact that it was the same building i'm like wow this is really cool that i've again sat in the stands in this building and watched this dude wrestle and now i'm in there feeding the hulk up so yeah, that was a real cool full circle moment, if you will. And and there's, it's cool. Anytime those come around where you realize that, um, your life has really changed over the, the last, however many years. Absolutely. You're intercontinental champ. There are a few tag title runs. I feel like the un-Americans maybe had some more legs. Did you think that too? Like it, it could go a little bit further. Yeah, there was, there was some political stuff over the un-Americans thing. And I still, every once in a while, hear other sides of it and stuff that I didn't know at the time. But yeah, there was, the the office had decided that Christian and Test weren't as into it as they were supposed to be. I have no idea why. But, and then word came down that they uh, they wanted them to get their hair cut that we wanted to be more of a militant look and wanted them to match my, at the time didn't have to be the, the flat top that I had, but they wanted the short more, uh, I think military accepted haircut and, and they both balked at that a little bit, but there was already, you could tell there was someone that had a problem with us for some reason, because when we were first formed as the Americans, we were specifically told, we don't want you having matching gear. We don't want you guys to look with bookends. We want each of you to have your own individual look, but we do want a unifying thread. And that's when I, it was actually my, my stepdad at the time come up with the upside down American flag um, for the you know, symbol of distress for the U S. So we'd have the t-shirts, but they didn't want us to match our gear. And then in this meeting, when, when edge and Christian were told to get their haircut, we were chastised for half-assing our efforts and not having matching gear yet. And I was like, we were specifically told to not get matching gear. It's like, if you want to yell at me, go ahead. But we were told not to do this. So don't right, tell yeah. me I'm half-assing it because we haven't got matching gear yet. Um, but then the haircut became an issue and they just decided that the the gimmick had run its course. But we were told that they did still see value in William Regal and I as a team, which is why we continued on as a tag team which we weren't technically still the un-Americans, but I think most people just consider it a continuation. And, and I do think William Regal and I still had more on the shelf, more legs, so to speak, but that's when William Regal got really ill and, you know, we missed out on the mania 19 cause he got really, really sick. And again, he almost died. And there was yeah. a, I got to think about a two year period where he didn't think he'd ever wrestle again. So it's not like anyone had the option to continue the Lance Storm William Regal tag team. And then thankfully, again, they eventually managed to get his health issues worked out. He managed to uh, make a comeback. So, but yeah, that run got cut down, not because anybody had any choice. One thing I didn't like with the run there, the boring. Remember Steve Austin comes out, starts chanting boring. Did you have any 
problem or issue with that? And obviously not with Steve because it's just part of the storyline, but with them kind of going in that direction because you never want the crowd chanting boring, but in this instance, they want them chanting boring. I don't know. I just didn't quite get that, then that angle and that gimmick. Yeah, when it when I first was told about it and Dean Malenko, who was an agent at the time, he was he was the guy that always broke the news ahead of time to me to 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 soften the blow. And he came to it, you know, just and he was the one that came to me when they had the the large penis idea and the other ones where he's like, um, just to let you know, Vince found this funny in the production meeting. So don't be surprised if. But when he first came to me, the boring thing, I'm like, oh, God. But. That was also the day and it, you know, I'm backstage and Steve Austin comes out to me. He's like, ah, oh, man, I hear they're going to strap the rocket to you, kid. We got a thing tonight. And it's like, there's anything I can ever do to help. It's like, you know, you know, just feel free to ask. And I'm like, cool. So I'm like, okay, this can't be a burial. They're using stone cold Steve Austin in this angle. Right. And then, you know, Vince pitched it to me as again, they were really big on trying to get crowd interaction at the time. And at the time they were chanting, you suck at Kurt. And he's like, you know, we just want them to react. Max, what are you doing? One second. Sorry, guys. He's finding things to eat. He's not supposed to. So he's like, no one thinks Kurt Angle sucks, but we like to get the crowd interaction. So you're just going to get them to say boring. I'm like, all right. And we did the initial thing with Steve on the, the the ramp with the pillow and stuff which i thought went really poorly and i went to vince and i'm like can we not make this about my personality is boring i said because we're still gonna have to have people come out and we're gonna have to have matches we can't make the wrestling boring because they're gonna have to watch this shit on television so i said can we make it more a shut up and wrestle gimmick where it's the God damn it, kid. If you just shut up and wrestle, we'd really enjoy it. Right. But we don't. And he seemed to go with that. And I think the following week was when we did, you know, a might have been when we did the the first um, highlight reel with Jericho. And we started steering it into his personality. And it actually started working on live events in that I would come out. And again, Brian Gewertz was, was writing some of the stuff at the time. And I, I always got along good with Brian where I would go to the ring and I would produce the prepared statement. And I would point out that, you know, the audience calling me boring is actually slander or libel, whichever the spoken word is. And that, you know, my my lawyer has informed me that if you do this, I'm going to sue you all. And then I would read the definition of boring from the dictionary to point out how I'm not, <laughs> which obviously would garner a really strong boring chant. Cause what's more boring than, you know, reading the damn dictionary. Yep. And then my opponent's music would hit. I do the head turn. Like I did in WCW, the pop would, would be huge because a it's the baby face and B I shut up and it started working. And oddly enough, as soon as I went and told Vince it was working, they changed direction, but but the thing too, and I've mentioned this on a few interviews, there was an eventual payday that got sidetracked, unfortunately, that if you remember the Survivor Series, I just got to text my daughter. Uh, where was I? Survivor there was an original payday where 
Um, there was building to the Survivor Series where Steve Austin was the sheriff. Yes. And he was feuding with Jericho and Jericho was trying to get the sheriff thrown out for, you know, overstepping his bounds. And they built to a, I think Bischoff was the team captain on one and, and Steve was on the other. And if Jericho's team won, Steve would be fired or something. But, and this was the time where it started with a highlight reel. It was Jericho, Test, Christian, and I. And he's pointing out all of the bad things that Steve Austin has done to everybody. This is when I'm dancing. And he gets to me and he's like, look what he's done to you. He's got you doing this. And I do the, actually, I'm kind of having fun for the first time in my life. I'm kind of glad he did. And they beat me up. Austin comes out and he, you know, RVD comes out and he sets up a tag and I pin Chris Jericho. I get a huge baby face reaction and we're moving forward. And I was told that I was going to be Austin's final pick for his team. Because again, I was the first one that stood up for Steve against Jericho and said, no, I actually liked it. So he was then going to stand up for me, which is I assuming when Austin told me they were going to strap the rocket to me, this is where he was of the impression it was going. Right. And I was going to be in that match. And Shawn Michaels was supposed to wrestle. It was either Randy Orton or Rob Van Dam. I don't remember which. Actually, we were babyface side, so it probably would have been Orton. Could be wrong. Doesn't matter. One of those two. We're going to be in a single match. And I hadn't been named as the fifth guy yet. And creative decided that they're going to hold off the Sean single match for another pay-per-view. And someone went, it's like, well, we got to have Sean on the show. What do we do with him? And he got my spot. Damn. And my whole angle just fell off the, off the cliff and never went anywhere again. And it's like, that would have been a big pay. Now I don't know if they would have given me as highlighted a, a, a portion of the match like they did Sean, but I still would have been on team Austin in their survivor series. Instead, I was probably wrestling somebody on Sunday night heat. And that was the end of me, but there was an original plan. And when I knew there was somewhere that it was going, I wasn't as against the boring angle and ha- where it went, but it, it just all ended up falling apart. Yeah. That's I don't know, the way it goes. It just thinks sometimes like they think uh, boring going to get over. It doesn't, but then you, when you actually do get it over, then they go in a different direction. Very, uh, it can be strange, strange world of uh, professional wrestling uh, for sure. But as uh, we start to wind it down, we head towards the finish here. Post WB, I was always a big fan of seeing you pop up places, especially when you pop up in Ring of Honor. I loved when Brian Danielson had that great title run. You came in at the huge ROH show, and it was you and him for the title. Awesome match. It was one of those things where it's like, wow, I thought Lance was retired. Nope, he's back. Do you uh, remember that match and that little feud there with Danielson as uh, you know, glowingly as I do? Yeah, I, it's it's one of my favorite matches. And it was a case of, again, I was retired, but Gabe Sapolsky kept trying to get me to come back and trying to get me to come back. And he ended up getting credit because that was my first match back, but it wasn't actually the reason in that he had tried to get me to come in, try to get me to come in. And then one PW from England at the time, uh, were running really big shows and they had reached out to try to get me to come over and I'm cheap and like to find ways in which I can do things that I want to without having to pay for them. And my wife had always wanted to go to England. So when the one PW people called me, I actually set a price that I thought they'd turn down. <laughs> yeah. And it was like, okay, I'm going to set a really high price because I don't really want to come out of retirement. 
And it's like, if they agree to it, I'm also going to add, they've got to buy two tickets because I'm bringing my wife. And they said, okay. I'm like, oh shit, I guess I'm coming out of retirement. So my wife and I flew over like, I think four days early. We spent four days sightseeing in England. She flew home and then I took the train up to Doncaster and I did the two. But once I agreed to the the 1PW shows, I'm like, well, I'm coming out of retirement. I got to get in shape. Hey, Gabe, <laughs> what about, this? you know, coming into a ring of honor and their date ended up being before the Doncaster dates. So while I agreed to the UK trip before the ring of honor trip, the ring of honor trip was my first match back after leaving WWE. And again, I, I was a huge fan of, of, of Brian Danielson even then. So I was looking forward to the chance of uh, working with him. It was big for ROH at that point too, because they were really trying to cement him. Obviously he was going to have like a long lengthy title reign, but they wanted to have names. So it's like, wow. Okay. So bringing Lance Storm technically, quote unquote, out of, out of retirement. Wow, Danielson beat Lance Storm. Like it just added to that title run. I was like, wow, what an awesome run. But that match was awesome. I just love that. And just added, it was like a highlight of, of his basically his long, very lengthy title run. It was funny too. When I, when I did my short uh, return to WWE as a producer before the uh, pandemic, I was actually talking to Brian and we, the, the match came up and he's like, you know, that was a really big thing for me. You were really the first, like the big league veteran type guy that I got to work. And it was just like, really? Oh, okay. I didn't, yeah. like, I had no idea. I had assumed he'd done a, you know, a ton of big things by then, but I guess he hadn't worked beyond where he was in ring of honor and different things and having the, the former, you know, big name WWE guy or whatever uh, come in. It's like, that was a, a, a big deal for him. And again, I just remember really enjoying the match and, and loved it. And we didn't know what the finish was going to be exactly when we went to the ring. We decided it out there in that obviously I was putting him over. I wasn't staying and he was a champ, but I just assumed, I was like, oh, I'll just tap to your cattle mutilation. He's like, I don't know if the audience is going to want to see you submit. So he was pitching doing a pinfall. And I'm like, well, the other one's your finish. I can just tap. And he's like, I don't know. And then he says, it's like, actually, he says, from the cattle mutilation, I can roll you over and bridge and pin you in the hold. So we decided, it's like, well, let's just go out there. And we countered in and out of it a couple times at the finish anyway. And he says, let's just decide. We'll listen to the audience when we get there. And if you feel like it's right, go ahead and tap. But if you don't, don't. And I will just roll you and pin you. And I'm like, all right, well, we'll see what happens. And then obviously, if you've seen the match, I tap. <laughs> yeah. And I think we went like 27 minutes or something. So it was, it was a good one. Yep. Awesome match. That's awesome to know. Like, wow, they're literally calling it in the ring. <laughs> I mean, well, <laughs> not a bit. We, well, actually, we called a fair bit of it in the ring, but it, it you know, this or this is the finish wasn't a huge adjustment to make. I'm always curious. It's a bit of a generic question, but I love like going on YouTube after, especially interviewing somebody like you and you're like, all right, what are some of your favorite matches or opponents? And then just put type it in like Lance Storm versus him, Lance Storm versus him. Is there a couple guys, obviously besides Brian Danielson that like stick out, like, man, you should go out on YouTube and, and watch me versus him or watch this match. Well, I, I think anything I did with Jerry Lynn was always really great. Uh, I really, and again, since it's like almost the anniversary of it, it's like the, the SummerSlam with Edge, I was a big fan of. It was my only singles pay-per-view in WWE, I believe, other than One wow. Night Stand, which is sort of a half half and half ECW WWE. But Great match, though. Yeah, say. I was really happy with that one. 
Um, you know, again, anyone, you know, um, another one I'd just like to point out because people think of the other one. I had two world title matches with Booker T and WCW, the Nitro that everybody remembers. We did one on Thunder from England that was way better because we didn't have Mike Awesome and Mighty Heidi at ringside and the debacle with the sandwiches and the Vince Russo booking, if you will. <laughs> we just had a, a straight up match that I think was a fair bit longer. And I was much happier with it, but it doesn't get anywhere near the praise because the Nitro one is more significant because I was on the run with the belts. But yep. the the later match with Book, actually, anytime I was in the ring with the Book, we always had really good chemistry together. Like right from the first time where we'd never worked with each other, it clicked, which would have been that world title match, the first one. You know, it clicked and worked well. And it's like I, I, I was fortunate to have a couple matches with him in WCW. And then again, there was a I think two different tag runs, I got to do programs with them. You know what I mean? So it's like, you know, when it was uh, Christian and I as the Americans, we got to work with Booker and Goldust. When it was William Regal and I, we got to work with Booker and Goldust. And then even just the initial few house uh, house show runs as the invasion was just kicking off, I did several house show singles matches with Book. And that guy's just phenomenal we gelled like right away so i always love working with books so if there's uh any match you pull up that has both booker t and i in it uh i think that one's worth checking out what would you say is the the legacy of lance Storm, including being a trainer of a lot of uh people that made it or still on tv today a lot of people that made it um being a great wrestler world traveled great worker what would you say if somebody said like looking back what's the stamp lance storm left behind or what's the legacy of a lance storm Oh, I hate that term and I hate even thinking about it. It's like what what not that, what, that not that you're that old or anything, you know. No, but it's like I have your your body of work is your body of work, and everyone can can think of it what they like. You know, I from day one, I always just wanted to be respected by my peers as, as being good at the job, and I I firmly believe I I have that. And if the legacy ends up being the people that I was trained and helped out along the way, then fantastic. If my legacy is uh, a dude that always produced a good match and, you know, didn't hurt anybody and was always a professional, then that's great too. But I'm, I don't know. I'm, I'm not a big, I need a legacy guy. You know, the, my, my true legacy is probably my kids that has nothing to do with wrestling. So I think Bret Hart has the best answer ever to that question. When he was asked, I think it was by Jim Ross back in the day. It's like, like what, what is Bret Hart's legacy or whatever? And he says that when you compare him to somebody else, you say about somebody else, that guy was good, but he was no Bret Hart. And I was like, oh, my, I always <laughs> stuck with me. It's like, that is such an awesome line. And most likely in 99.9% of cases, it's probably true. Yeah. Uh, uh, well, actually, you know, in, in 100% of the cases, because even if you wanted to make an argument that someone was better than Bret, there's still no Bret. It's like right. no one was better at being Bret than Bret. But wrestling's a subjective art. So if you, uh, Want to remember me as being great? Fantastic. If you want to be, remember me as being mediocre? It's like, hey, that's your prerogative too. If you want to remember me as a guy with a dog that won't behave, that's cool too. <laughs> so, of course, want to also mention one more time the training seminar on September 18th and 19th in Toronto, Ontario, Canada at Event Bright Ticks. Go there. Literally just type in Landstorm Training Seminar, Toronto, Canada. It pops right up. Obviously, it's going to be a good one, right? This uh, training seminar is going to be like no other. Yep. The, again, it's uh, four hours each day in the afternoon and there is a Q and a that there's, I, I assume they're still available. I don't know, but there is a Q and a in the evening on the Saturday as well that I'm doing. So I will be uh, doing lots in Toronto, September 18th and 19th. So uh, come out and say hi. 
Also, please give us all your plugs, social media, and even where people can get information on doing some virtual training with you. Yeah, you can follow me on Twitter at Lance Storm. That's the best place. If I do anything or announce anything, it'll always be on Twitter. So that's your best place to find me. I am doing coaching virtually um, via Zoom and stuff, match feedback and seminars and other things. Uh, all inquiries for that you can send to swavirtualtraining at gmail.com. All right. Awesome stuff. Mr. Lance Storm, thank you so much for all the time today. Really appreciate it. All right, man. Take care. This has been a John Paz Power Trip production in conjunction with the two-man power trip of wrestling. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at two-man power trip. You can check us out on Facebook. You can subscribe on YouTube. You can go to patreon.com slash TMPT Empire to become a patron. And also check out the website tmptempire.com and buy a shirt at prowrestlingtees.com. Two-man power trip where the power lies brother.